0: Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse.
1: Today on tap, we have Terminator 2, Judgment Day, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, Robert Patrick, and introducing Edward Furlong, Wow! Written, <laughs> written by James Cameron and William Wisher and directed by James Cameron. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue on with our Summer Box Office Hall of Fame Part 3 cast. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun with this and talking about the turtles and Indy again, and here we're actually harkening back to a film that we started way back earlier in the rice smile days with the first Terminator. And here's its inevitable sequel T2 judgment day from
0: 1991. Do you remember seeing this one when it, when it came out? Yeah. Let me tell you the story. I got my wisdom teeth pulled that weekend. Okay. So it came out on a Friday and I got my wisdom teeth pulled on that Friday and got home. The anesthesia wore off and I was in a state of absolute misery mm. But I had to see that film that day, so I shined it on and went to the theater with my mouth as about as big as a chipmunk, filled with acorns, and made it through the movie and enjoyed it. And I guess it was a distraction for a couple hours, and then I went home and robbed several pain pills. (laughs) Trooper, I would never do. I was so loopy when I got
1: my wisdom teeth out that it was I was just out of (laughs) commission.
0: Fortunate enough to do it early in the morning, so it worn off by a seven o'clock showing. But I went with my two of my buddies, and you know the God, how old were you in that? came out three you're too young to even remember but every other video on mtv was um you could be mine Mm. and i remember watching that and trying to decode every moment in that video that was sort of an additional trailer to the film let's be honest about it and uh by the time it came the hype train was in full effect and gladly Uh, we weren't disappointed when we left, so. Excellent. Well, this is going to be How about you. Where did you see it? Rental, (gasps) I'm sure.
1: Oh, when did I see it? Uh, It was actually with one of my buddies. when We we went through like a heavy, heavy Schwarzenegger kick, and I think I've told you about that box set of his that I had that had Commando, Running Man, Total Recall and Predator and it was around that time and then we I was just watching them all and finally got around to seeing that one and
0: then you saw Last Action Hero and you decided you were not going to watch anymore well
1: I'm going to tell you what it it coupled into it It coupled into a research project on James Cameron that I did in the eighth grade and it I was heavy heavy on the T2 side so (laughs) I can't I can't wait to talk about it so cheers to that cheers to that some more of the Calumet Farms This one's pretty good. I've already stated how much of a favorite this one is for me.
0: Get vanilla or do you get um, caramel at the beginning? Vanilla. I get that too. A little bit of at the very back end, a little leather.
1: Mm, Yeah. Okay.
0: But not pancake batter. (laughs) So stupid. Such an inside joke. You shouldn't, that's day seven of podcast school. You're not supposed to do that is tell inside jokes because the rest of your audience doesn't get it.
1: Well, it's for me to laugh and then they can just laugh, laugh
0: at me. (laughs) They hear the joyous laughter (laughs) emitting from your sweet face.
1: Well, let's get this started with our flight question. You quickly left the room and now you came back and you're dressed all in leather.
0: Like, what happened? It's a good thing he didn't walk into a Babies or Us or somewhere like that, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Matt, hit us with the flight. When you text me this
1: question, I was like, this is one of the best questions you've ever asked. And it's a question that this film absolutely ponders by how they're going to portray Arnold this time around. And hit us with it.
0: So in honor of the T-800? Yeah. What I was looking for is the best, what would you say, transfer of bad guy to good guy in a ladder entry in film, but it could be fiction if you wanted to go that way. So okay. as Arnold going to become the champion of Mr. Eddie Furlong, mm-hmm. John Connor, in mm-hmm. this film, I thought, not by any rankings, but just by personal choice, what are your top three favorite bad guy becoming good guys in popular fiction.
1: Excellent. We'll start at number three. I'll go first. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're actually wearing the shirt right now, Matt. It's Apollo Creed. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw... I, if you go back and listen to the Rocky cask when we did that, but I saw those films all out of order. I'm pretty sure it was four, one, two. So I knew he had turned at some point, but I didn't know when. And I didn't know how. And when I finally get to see it in part three, I could never have believed that that character would ever champion for the goodwill of Rocky Balboa and help him get over the hump, the eye of the tiger. And what a, what a turn it is for to see enemies become friends. Uh, It's, it works so well in that, in that series. So that's all I'll say about that.
0: Go a long way to have them running through the waves together and hugging and not want to choke yourself to death on cotton candy, uh,
1: getting all glistening in the, in the water there. Yep. God bless baby oil. All
0: right. What's your number three? Number three is Mr. Montgomery. Monty Brogan from The 25th Hour. Ooh, nice. So it's a little bit different because this isn't um, in a latter entry, but it's in the latter half of this entry. And because there's almost a post credit scene to this, I kind of cheated and used it. I
1: don't know, that's okay.
0: So uh, I've seen The 25th Hour. I sure have, One yeah. of my all-time favorite movies. Really good. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to give too much away because I would like people someday to see that. Is that your favorite Spike Lee movie? By a mile. Okay. And there's a lot of... Sp-
1: Re, a lot there's of, a lot
0: of Spike <laughs> Lee that I really like a lot of really good Spike Lee movies I, I love Jungle Fever mm-hmm. I love Mobetta Beta Blues mm-hmm. um, but that's my number one awesome so Montgomery Brogan is the drug dealer who has one last night before they're going to put him away and it's a story of what happens with Barry Pepper and Philip Seymour Hoffman mm-hmm. aptly coupled by Rosario Dawson and um, Rogue what the hell's her name True Blood Chick oh, uh, Anna Paquin yep. Man, it's good mm-hmm We'll do, such we'll, a good. We'll drama. do that one one of these days. All right, I'm gonna hold you to that. Okay. All right. Number two for me mm-hmm. uh,
1: from the Harry Potter franchise. I gotta go Severus Snape. Uh, primarily because he's just such a bastard. The whole film or the whole series, and you really don't know why until the final entry when he's like bit the bullet and you're like, how redeemable can this guy be? Because I hadn't read the books when I saw the films. Mm. So when I'm seeing the films, I'm seeing it like for the first time. And when he killed Dumbledore. It's like, he's like, yeah, how could someone come back from this? And you find out all the whys in the next one. And it's such a redeeming arc for a character that you've essentially hated up until that moment. Like, what have you liked about him until that revelation? And I think it's masterfully done because 80% of it, in my opinion, because Alan Rickman is so incredible. As that. So character. good. So when he's dying there and telling him all the truth and how he really cared about him, it is quite emotional. So that's my number two.
0: Such a fantastic character study, Mm -hmm. Mr. Severus Snape. If you want to just approach it from the angle of tragedy, there's plenty there. If you want to approach it from the angle of misunderstood, for all the things that J.K. Simmons is or is not or whatever you feel about that series, Mm -hmm. none of the failures... J.K. Simmons? I'm sorry, uh, J.K. (laughs) Rowling. None of the successes or failures. You're not on my
1: tempo, Potter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, are the, the failures of that character coming through in whatever capacity you no, yeah. need to do. It's a really well, well-written character. Absolutely. Good choice. What's your number two? Fast Eddie Felsen.
1: Oh, okay. That's a great one.
0: Um, I guess it's tough a little bit, right? Because anti-hero starts to kind of work its way into this discussion, and... Like he sucks at the beginning of that movie. Like He kind of sucks at the end, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end when he finally beats Minnesota Fats yeah. and then gives a little shout-out to, boy, we sure did her in, didn't we, Bert? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sarah dies so that he can win some stupid pool game. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, I guess he accomplishes his goal, but it's pretty hollow. Mm. He's pretty hateable. Yeah. And... By the time we finish The Color of Money, that hateable has turned into a little bit aged and maybe naive, and that the edges of hustle have been rounded pretty dramatically to where he's pretty soft Mm -hmm. and chumpishly gets strung along by. Mr. Tom Cruise and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. Don't
1: forget Eric Clapton.
0: <laughs> never. I never will. to Eric Clapton.
1: Um, a question for you, because yeah. it's a film you really like and talk about it and bring it up a lot. Um, uh, it's one of your favorites. Do you think they could have ever done, apart from The Color of Money, could have done
0: more with that character? Oh, and man, yeah. In other films? By the time they revisited it, it was almost too late. Mm-hmm. The backstory on Bert. The backstory on Minnesota Fats. Sure. Um, I'm curious with that era of Tom Cruise, the era of color of money and risky business and that 87, 86, that period, even top gun to a certain degree and kind of the infant, the momentum that he's certainly going to get again from top gun Two coming out. Yeah. Which I want to see. I'll be there opening night. Yeah. And I didn't even really care for the first one, but go um, go listen
1: to our episode on that. Yeah. (laughs)
0: If there's some traction in that, yeah, I think there is. He's pretty he's pretty gettable these days, and he's still in demand, but mm-hmm. not the same way. Uh, they obviously wouldn't have Paul Newman in there anymore, but but there's stories left there a lot. There's a lot of meat on that bone. Okay. John Turturro's a part of that too. Sure, um, at the very beginning, that John Turturro's Eddie's racehorse who just gets smoked by Vincent.
1: I need to see that one again, Color of Money. I've seen The Hustler quite a few times like you have, but I haven't seen that one nearly as much, maybe only once or twice.
0: We might just need to sit down and just do maybe like a really small cask with both of those. Yeah. It would be worth it. We obviously, we're going to do The Hustler someday because mm-hmm. I bring it up every second episode. Absolutely. But, okay, so that's my number two. What's your
1: number one? You know my number one. I it's do. It's one of my favorite franchises of all time and I want to, partly because of the longevity of it all, is the Xenomorph never becomes a good guy, <laughs> Jesse. Nor does Michael Myers. Never. It's <laughs> Godzilla. Yeah. Uh, To start out in Godzilla 54 is just such a... Crazy metaphor for the nuclear bomb, the atomic energy and the villain for quite a bit of that franchise up until I think uh, Ghidorah, the three headed monster was the that's so you're five, six movies in already. And now Mm. we're going to be like, well, he's kind of the good guy now. And he's he's the one that can squash the alien evil, carry that all the way until now. Mm. And he's been a villain a couple times since then, but mostly the good guy. Uh, It's partly the reason why I think they've made so many is because he he's been able to play both sides of it and be something that someone will wear on their t-shirt proud as being like so, so heroic. So mm-hmm.
0: that's my number one. Good choice. Yeah. I kind of knew you were going to go there. Mm-hmm. I had that or one other one, but you went with that other one. Well, you already took my number one. It is Mr. Apollo Creed. That's why I wore the shirt today. Cause it's
1: such a good one. Yes.
0: He's terrific. Mm-hmm. And, um, if the legacy of Apollo Creed was ever in doubt, then look no further at where that franchise is today. Mm hmm. And I think that Absolutely. says it all. He does a great job in an era that wasn't quite as gregarious as boxing might be today, mm-hmm. of coming across as ultra ultra brass, shucking and jiving, louder than life. And if you go to three, mm-hmm. now I know we're not talking about, or four, I'm sorry, the way that he comes into the ring with Drago, he kind of yeah. has it coming. I mean, it's he, hard to say, yeah. but... He's kind of acting like an asshole.
1: That's why I was thinking about three a lot, because it it is so egotistical with him. And for a brief fleeting moment, he's able to put that away to help Rocky out get back on track. And I think that's what makes that turn so brilliant.
0: When we strip away the glam and the glitz and the red, white, and blue trunks, and we just get back to where he was training in the middle of that dusty, dank, dirty, Mm -hmm. one light gym. His roots. Yeah. Then you start to see how this man or that character was carved from hard times and harder foes. And I think it's a really telling moment because where Creed in the Rocky franchise used his braggadocio to sharpen his sword. What ends up happening to Rocky is the finer things in life dull his. I think the sword sharpener for Creed through one, two, and I guess three to a certain degree, and even four a little bit, Mm -hmm. is hubris. If you say it, you've got to back it up. Because in those early lean years in the gym that is filled with the likes that we see in Rocky Three, where he retrains Rocky, Mm -hmm. every one of those guys is out for blood, and that might be all that you have. Sure. So... Talk a big game and you better back it up. And it also solidifies what a great champion he was. And all of those traits through one and two are kind of hateable. Oh, yeah. No, you don't like him. You don't root for him. You want to see him lose. And then in three, Mm -hmm. we strip all that away and we get down to what Creed is. Mm -hmm. And it's, we're going to swim and we're going to sprint and we're going to work on your feet. And we're going to teach you the sweet science and the art inside the squared circle of boxing. Awesome. How to be a few a good pugilist. And you know what? Creed's a great teacher. Yeah. Yeah, so there's my number one.
1: Excellent. Great choice. That, great was, that was a great list. That really got me thinking about just, you know, films and how often this happens, which it doesn't happen often. I mean, if they're bad, they usually stay bad. They're good. They usually stay good. Or very rarely do they go bad. So
0: Any consideration to Mr. Darth Vader?
1: Uh, No. <laughs> me either. Because the journey to get there
0: is well-documented on (laughs) why i don't like it and totally undone later on
1: i like the redemption arc in in return of the jedi that's a nice moment for him but i don't need to see every waking step to get there in the next three prior iterations so no that's it's one of the reasons why i don't like prequels in general as we've stayed all the time Mm -hmm. this is great this uh off to a great start let's get right into it Matt, with our review breakdown of t2 judgment day (laughs)
2: Three billion human lives ended on August 29th, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines.
1: First things first, let's start with the first thing we see. Oh, let me ask you a question, then I'll, I'll say that. Which version of the movie did you watch? Uh, did you watch the theatrical, the director's cut, or the extended edition? And the way I'll ask you that, was there a flashback scene of Michael Bean in the uh, in the insane asylum? No. Okay, so you watched the theatrical. I did too. Yeah. Okay, so there's, there's three different versions. It's mostly just kind of padding <laughs> to enhance some of the scenes. Um, but I find that this version, the theatrical, is probably the best one to watch.
0: Um, I didn't know if I've ever seen those other two yeah. until you just said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they
1: sometimes show them on TV, but, uh, it's one director's cut. I actually don't really need it. This is the one to watch. So, alrighty, First thing we see, Matt, it's one of our favorite things. Corelco pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Vajda. Yeah. <laughs> Can I tell you real quickly how like this all came to be because, mm-hmm. uh, I have a lot of notes today about just the production of this film because it's very well documented, but they wanted to do a sequel pretty soon after the first one. It was kind of a quiet hit when it came out—not a huge hit, but you know, people talked about it. They they enjoyed it, but what they, the ambition of what Cameron wanted to do, like the technology, wouldn't be able to meet his like vision. And then Hemdale Productions, which helped self finance, kind of an indie company, made the first one, and they were like in a legal lockout of the rights to this thing. So. Schwarzenegger actually went to Mario Caser and said, Hey, like, this is the franchise I've been telling about. You need to go pony up and purchase this thing so we can make this film. So Caser went and, for $5 million purchased the rights to the Terminator franchise, and they were able to make this movie. And oh, you'll see how much money they made off of this one. It's it was a very lucrative investment.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a really well spent five million dollars.
1: So between like uh, like the the, camp, the when Paul Verhoeven swung and knocked it out of the park, and Cameron doing stuff with Corralco, like this company at this time is just on, on fire. fire, absolute fire. How they demise we've talked about many times is just remarkable to me.
0: On fire, mm-hmm. only to be undone mm-hmm. by a musical about pirates, and mm-hmm. I don't mean of Penzance. Yeah. I know if Cutthroat Island goes the way of the dinosaurs and any of the other films that we talked about, I felt that were a lot of that Mm -hmm. best films that never made in that shot a year ago. Crusade. Yep. Any of those. Mm -hmm. Maybe things are a lot different. Probably.
1: They might still be churning along, but it might be their days are numbered when this film comes out. Mm -hmm. This opening scene is something that's always really stuck with me. I mean, you kind of just cut to like modern day Los Angeles and then to 20 2029? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're almost there, Matt. Yikes. <laughs> uh and it's just a wasteland. And that sound clip I played, what an amazing introduction to the Terminator, which was essentially almost stop-motion animation last time out, and now you got a full functional thing and it looks badass. And the flying machines, the machinery, this war that's been talked about and just studied in the last entry looks incredible i i understand why they wanted to eventually get there with salvation make a movie about that because it looks cool Mm -hmm. the lasers the machines the tanks that are just rolling over skulls like it's just it's just a a road of skulls that have been wiped out by the nuclear fire like what do you think of this opening i think it's a great tone setter for how different this one's going to be compared to the last one
0: I think the first thing that Cameron's going to do is show off his technology chops and what lengths we've gone since the previous entry. So Mm -hmm. 84 to 91, right? That's not that long.
1: Uh, Seven years, yeah.
0: And, you know, as a guy who has spared no expense in extolling his own virtues with uh, Pandora Mm -hmm. and the lengths that he went in to build that, for all of the hype that that is story-wise and doesn't deliver but does deliver visually... Mm I don't think this gets nearly enough praise. And I think the first part is him saying, remember clay and stop animation. Yeah, that's all gone. Mm -hmm. Check this out. And it does sort of make you sit back in your seat and go compared to the first. Wow. Especially
1: well, now we're a little kind of desensitized to, to it because it's gotten better, you know, things like thanos and you know these uh caesar and Planet of the apes like it's it looks incredible now
0: yeah sinker ball meet the split finger all of a sudden right we have elevated it big time
1: but here like in its infancy like we can kind of see like where the effects look like but in 91 this must have just been like how whoa my god how mm-hmm. did they do that like how did they like create some of these things like i think that's part of the magic of this film
0: and it's almost an appetizer because it's setting you for what's going to come, which is the T one thousand, and mm. that's even cooler.
1: Well, let's get to let's get to the arrival of the Terminator. So we preface kind of like with a speech that's been told to us in the last film that John Connor's the leader of this resistance, and they tried once, they're going to try again. But when he's an, a, a boy, and it's just a matter of which one gets to him first. So, Matt, in the trailers leading up to this, and all the kind of stuff you're reading about this film, was it pretty well forecasted that Arnold was going to be the good one this time? Yes. Okay. It's just, it's just interesting. I always wondered if that was like going to be a huge shock and you kind of wait for that moment in the mall alleyway, wherever they are there, like when you finally see which one's going to turn, which one's going to be bad. But I think it's refreshing to see Arnold as kind of the good guy this time because he played the bad guy so well in the last one. That was mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts about it and his shaved eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he rolls up to this bar and then just like everyone's like freaking out, this naked man, this and
0: that. And- I need your clothes, your boots. And your motorcycle. And just d- destroys all these people. Just like like you you see that he
1: hasn't lost anything in the killing instinct. But he's the protector this time. And the reason I know totally that this is going to be different is the sound that I played earlier was the George Thurgood, the Bad the Bone. We're a little bit more tongue-in-cheek with how we're presenting the characters. Like last time out, it was a lot of dun-dun-dun. Dun, 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 dun. It was all this low droning music, and it was like, we talked a lot about it being a slasher film almost, like a horror film slasher. Yeah. Not this time. No. This is kind of a pure action vehicle, and I'm okay with that.
0: I think we're seeing a formula that Cameron's really good at, right? Mm-hmm. And that might be the reimagining in the sequel of the previously established horror concept.
1: Don't you think more people should go to go to work on that idea? Why yes. redo the same film again and reinvent it as another
0: genre, but within the same universe? I mean, no one says you can't do that. As much as we lamented over Nightmare 2, and this is way below anything James Cameron would ever put his hand on as far as the Nightmare franchise, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. If you think about Freddy, there's plenty of action space for a character like Freddy. Like, take the xenomorph and its killing abilities and the razor-like attack capabilities that it presents and then the muscular sort of bipedal humanistic nature of the T-1000 to T-800, whatever you want to go. Mm-hmm. It was seemed like it was right there. Why he didn't do that doesn't really matter. What I'm saying is to, your, to the larger point is mm-hmm. there's a lot of second entries. That suck. <laughs> that suck that should go to school on. You can still make enough scare, but if it's not scary because you've already presented the character, maybe the way to go is to smash it up a little bit. Sure. And to him, hallelujah! He's done it twice, really well. <laughs> twice, really well. He can make the case maybe better than the original in both.
1: I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna. I'll talk a little bit about that other film that we're alluding to a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But uh, the T1000, Robert Patrick, uh, as a kid when I saw this, like he he terrified me. Like yeah. his and maybe because he was slender than Arnold, like he's a kind of a skinny guy. But when he gets gives a furlong chase on the dirt bike, I was like, I was like. He could run anyone down. I mean, and he nothing is going to tire him out because he's a machine. Mm-hmm. What a great antagonist for this. That's Like, his motivations are so pure and simple. It's like, I just got to kill John Connor. I'm going to find him. I'm going to kill him. Anyone who gets in my way is also dying. Uh, and then his advantages this time out are many. Like, Arnold is at such a disadvantage fighting this thing, even though he's bigger than it.
0: Slower. Mm-hmm. And as crazy as this sounds, because in the first film, the T-800 seemed indestructible. A lot more destructible than this gelatinous piece of metal that can shape and move through anything it wants.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'll never forget the guy that I used to work with at the job I had at this time. The dude's name was PJ. Mm. And for some reason, he loved the Terminator franchise, but he refused to pay full ticket price to see it. So he was going to wait for the dollar film. So oh. movie came out and... Man, like a day, two days after I recovered from my teeth and was back at work, he asked, how was it? And the question that he asked is how do you destroy a piece of liquid metal, which is the quintessential question for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And for about three months, he posed hypothesis after hypothesis. And we had some sort of conversation that usually went like, do you want me to tell you? Yeah. And he was like, no. And I just would be like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good idea. And, he never did get to the way it happens in this film, but he came up with some pretty genius stuff. But I think he got as much mileage out of that mm-hmm. as he maybe did seeing it. The guy just wouldn't pony up $5 to see it. He wanted to pay a dollar or whatever it was at the dollar theater. And so I remember when he said, I'm going to see it this weekend and we had a nice chat, but that's the big question yeah. to what you said. The Terminator, the T 800 in the original film is very terrifying and it takes being squashed under a press To barely get away, and I mean barely, Mm -hmm. you can't shoot it, it's smarter, it has targeting, it's all of the technology without any of the fallibility of the human Mm -hmm. embodiment. Now take all that and add it to shape-shifting and even less matter to attach because how do you smash... Something that is liquid in whatever state it wants. There's
1: that one scene where he punches him through the head and his hand hand gets like stuck in it. Mm -hmm. And he just pulls it out and grabs his hand like there's no way. So Cameron's already done something. He's already kind of already trying to find ways to top the original by increasing the stakes. And he's made the villain more of a a menace than it ever was in the first film. But I think the stakes increase for all the characters involved, including, you know, Sarah Connor, who's locked up here at Pescadero uh, Mental Hospital, still being interviewed by the same guy that's just given her hell this entire time. But her arc, to me, is pretty interesting as well because she has almost gone the route since we last saw her driving off into the storm to pregnant with John. Like, total, like almost like a total conspiracy head, you know what I mean? Like, I know that they kept something, and I know this, and I know that. And I can't stop and I can never let my guard down as long as, you know, I got to protect my son. And so that's admirable too. You know, for her to start out in the last one as a waitress, mm-hmm. to go from that to her revelations to now this, to now trying to like, I'm, I I got to see my son, I need to protect my son at all costs to the point where they have a moment later in the back of the car when she's almost like, it was stupid of you to come for me because you do you realize how important you are. Like, it's almost like, gee, thanks, Mom. Like, we came to save you, and it's almost like you shouldn't have done that. Like, how dare you do something like that? So she's going to have to go through a whole thing, and she's gotten a lot more badass doing those chin-ups there in her room just trying to find a way to get out of here because she's no good use in here. She needs to be out there to help her son.
0: I remember when the doctor showed up outside her door. Mm-hmm. She finishes those pull-ups, and she turns around, and she says, doctor, whatever the hell his mm-hmm. name is. And her bangs are down over her eyes, and she just looks feral. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can describe her as feral. She's chiseled. Uh, They did an amazing job with her and her physique in the gym to give her the warrior-like look that's not the soft, pretty waitress we saw in the first one. And when she said, what's that doctor's name? I'll look it up. Whatever his name is, Dr. So-and-so. And you can see the anger behind her. But what you get in that moment also, and it's going to play out just a moment, is she's trying really hard to prove to him that she's back to some state of sanity. Silberman. Dr. Silberman. I'm trying to prove desperately to Dr. Silberman that I'm back to my feet on the ground and I'm not this wild, crazy thing that you think I am. And let me prove it to you. And then, man, when we get the footage of her just screaming and losing it and she's smoking that cigarette and you can almost see her hand trembling as she's mm-hmm. watching it. Of course he's going to deny her. She goes into pleading You have to let me see my son Please
2: Please He's in great danger. He's naked without me If I could just make a phone call afraid not. Not for
0: a while I don't see any choice but to recommend to the review board that you stay here for another six
2: months.
1: I like that you use the word feral. I mean, how could you be anything but that when you've learned the things you have? If you're going to take what Reese told you as the truth, and especially after all the shit you saw, a robot chased you in a, in a facility, you would be kind of a little like, God, oh, like this is... This is insanity and I, I have to be prepared. What I really like about her is I think the goals of her remain the same from the prior film is I gotta protect my son. I gotta protect, you know, the baby inside of me, I gotta protect my grown son now. But I think the stakes have increased for her uh exponentially. And that's a, a really great lesson that Carpenter also did with Ripley in Aliens as well. So he knows how to write really strong female characters, but then also evolve them throughout their films as well. I think he does a great job with Connor here.
0: I think every parent wants their kid to change the world. Mm -hmm. And eventually you come into an acknowledgement that maybe that's just them being a really good, active, solid participant is enough. Mm -hmm. So take all of those common tropes that involve parenthood. Add to that the mother element and the protective mother element. And then being estranged from your son. And then let's take it, as you said, to a higher level, which is not only do you want your son to be really great? But the continuance of mankind depends solely upon it. Yeah. So there's no question that this woman is in a heightened state of panic or frenzy or whatever you want to call that. I don't even, hysteria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's for good reason. Here's the thing. Yeah, We talk a lot about, especially in the last three months, why characters are doing what they're doing, and does it make sense? Does the decibel level of the character match the song that you want to hear it played so high at, right? Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, it is done so efficiently because we know what John Connor is going to become., yep. And this is our first introduction into John Connor. Yep. As you said in the first film, she's pregnant rolling down the road to Mexico, I guess. Mm-hmm. So this is Eddie Furlong introducing us to John Connor and in that i don't know 15 seconds that sound clip that you just paid mm-hmm. played we get all of it yeah. not only how important he is but how dogged she is in determining that that fate is actualized and along the way an introduction to i think what's a fantastic new challenging bad guy and in order here's the final piece mm-hmm in order to make this whole mankind salvation bit work, she's got to give her son over to the thing that just five minutes ago mm-hmm. was trying to kill him. Yeah, I, I don't know if you have the sound, but I love the sound when she's talking about the Terminator as father too. Mm-hmm. The narrative element in this is really not I don't, really good, I, I I don't have
1: that one, but we'll, we'll get to that because I think that's a pretty important uh, sequence. So
0: you act. hit the nail on the head, Jesse. Like the stakes... <laughs> the staircase writing yeah. stakes increasing to that mm-hmm. Jim Cameron and whoever that other guy that wrote it with him. William Wisher sure. yeah, yeah. It was probably a lot of camera. I mean, this is his whole Genesis that was, you know, that
1: he did back in 84, not
0: in that kind of Terminator Genesis. Not oh, with the well, I got
1: I gotta, I'm going to say something about that later, too. <laughs> but, uh, no, and then so we're introduced to Edward Furlong as John Connor, uh, and we kind of get to see a little bit of his resourcefulness. It's all for the benefit of not good. I mean, stealing uh, money out of the ATMs with his uh, like, ciphering machine, <laughs> uh, listening to Guns N' Roses, GNR as they blast down, just being like kind of punks, you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Edward Furlong was found at a Boys and Girls Club in Pasadena, California by the casting director. I mean, he was literally plucked out to play this character. How about that? Much like McConaughey, we talked about with Dazed and Confused. I mean, you're just right place, right time and didn't really have an interest in acting. He just kind of fit the mold that they were looking for. And I don't want to say that he's terribly amazing in this film, but I think he's comparable to like what, what they need him to be, which is kind of this high hijinks esque youth. That's, you know, up to nefarious deeds. But then when the shit hits the fan, he's got to kind of come into his own and quickly. And I think he does a lot of important things along the way too, especially once the Terminator shows up, the good one.
0: <laughs> since you brought up Eddie Furlong at this state, let's do it. Okay. Uh, how long had it been since you'd seen this film prior to this viewing? And upon this viewing, did he take you out of it with his lack of ability to, to act?
1: Uh, it's probably been about four or five years since I last seen it. And I don't think he doesn't take me out of it because everything else around it is pretty strong. Yeah. Uh, I did count his voice squeaks this time. Uh, I counted 14 of them. <laughs> going through puberty, is <laughs> he? Yeah, a rough time for any any youth. Uh, but yeah, he doesn't really take me out of it because he's, he is supposed to be a punk and he kind of looks like a punk and probably acts like a punk in real life
0: too at this time. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's what they were going for and that kind of fits for me.
0: Okay, so that leads into this next question I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. Who is worse? Mm.
1: Okay.
0: Picked out of the... Um, Boys and Girls Club esque casting room. Uh-huh. Mr. Patrick Fujit in Almost Famous or Eddie Furlong and T two.
1: Okay, they're both not amazing. Okay. But the content around them helps yep. you know what I mean Agreed. so like it's it's not enough for it to like totally kill the film or even kill the character no. for, for for me in that but it's, it's a good point they're very similar
0: white-eyed ingenue plays a little bit better than punk but both like you said not great but that's part of first appearance in film and there's also a charm there in almost famous mm-hmm. Patrick Fugit gets away with naivete mm-hmm. In, in this but it, again doesn't it didn't take me out of the film and they're actually this for me this time uh-huh there were a couple of okay moments yeah and some of the moments that really aren't great mm-hmm. aren't for me furlong's fault it's just so sort of dumb moments like the high five thing that he's doing with arnold it's, mm-hmm. i get what they're going for yeah it's just a little sloppy and kind of cutesy yeah okay yeah, just per- i'm just curious what you thought about that
1: that's interesting
0: did you pick up on that early were you like "Ooh, he's a little wooden
1: yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah. It's yeah. cause it's my thing with kid actors, you know, that's why I was like, these kids in the quiet place films are really great. Mm. Like that's hard to find. So well said, yeah, you can't point. always get like the winner, like the Tatum O'Neill in your paper moon. You know what I mean? You can't always find that genius Well said. at such a young age, but let's get to the first big set piece of this film, which is this Terminator confrontation at the mall, which leads to a dirt bike, semi-truck motorcycle chase, that's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first time we see that he has these liquid properties. When he shoots him, he's got all these blobs on him, and then they just go away. He heals himself back to his regular form. Right there, you're just like, oh, that's Arnold's up against it. Like his primary weapon in the last film was artillery, guns. And this ain't gonna do anything against this guy. And then we see how fast he is just mm-hmm. on the on a foot chase against a dirt bike and. I still just it terrifies me just I just picture Robert Patrick chasing me down in a street just like he's going to get me eventually. Yeah. And then this chase in the in the Arroyo in the in the Los Angeles, you know, you know, flood, flood canals here. Amazing. Like this this is great stunt work. I mean, this is always really well regarded as one of the finest action films of all time or I've always been one to say that Cameron's a really great action director. Sure. But you see it here first this when the semi truck goes over the embankment to get down there with him and then Arnold shooting down at him from the top and then grabs him off the thing. And then it's just, it's, it's an adrenaline rush. What do you, what do you think of this sequence?
0: Yeah. Same thing. It's amazing. And if that's happening at like maybe 30 minutes into the film, you can only imagine what's coming later. And I remember thinking, boy, we are having a very cool motorcycle chase with a semi through an Arroyo. And this is amazing what's coming and frankly it gets better but I like that James Cameron is able to look at what's necessary in the action components here and find a way to not only shoot it in a way where you can see it Tony Scott Mm mm-hmm
1: yeah, it's very clear. It's not It's not. Michael Bay. Sh- not shaky cam. Uh, who, right. Yeah, it's- the
0: action around the camera is fine, but the camera can't be active. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, that to me mm-hmm. was so striking in this film. Yeah. That rolling camera through the sky as the things are fighting in the sky is so bad and cheap. And this is to the artistry of being able to see something interesting and not getting in the way of seeing it.
1: It gets better in my favorite action moment of the film later, which is when he's in the helicopter chasing them down the freeway. Mm. Oh, like, I was just like, how did they do this? Like, this is an actual guy in a helicopter with another helicopter behind him filming steady on a freeway. And you can, and it's so clear and, Mm -hmm. and steady. And I was just like, I was in awe at the, just the stunt, the practicality of it all.
0: And you should be. And I think for all the things we might say about James Cameron today, yeah, he is very successful about the framing of the shot mm-hmm. yeah. he knows what he's doing yes
1: it's one of his strengths actually indeed I, I mentioned that in that report <laughs>
0: <laughs> still true today yes he uh, did good research
1: so then we get into so the Terminator himself Arnold the T-800 Uncle Bob he gets my name later uh, he's a, he's essentially the same as we saw him in the last film. But his kind of component, his prime directives, his RoboCop prime directives are <laughs> protect John Connor this time, not kill. He's wired the same way, though, and we see it in this scene here.
2: No! Put the gun down now! Get out of here! Come on, to split! Come on! Jesus, you're going to kill that guy!
3: Was. I'm Correct. a Terminator.
2: <laughs> Listen to me very carefully, okay? Is the,
1: this is the best here.
2: You're not a Terminator anymore, all right? You got that? You just can't go around killing people! Why? What do you mean, why? Because you can't! Why? Because you just can't, okay? Trust me on this. I'm going to go get my mom, and I order you to help me.
1: He should have said, why? <laughs> Almost like a child, you know what I mean? Very childlike in his intellect, but his prowess in killing is off the charts. But he starts, Connor and him start forming an interesting bond here, where it's it's father figure looking after child, but then Connor starts to become father figure trying to teach the ways of the Terminator too, and trying to show him you can't act like this in society. And just maybe if, like, I I'm always, i don't want to spoil anything at the end, but had they were able to make it out of this thing alive, or he was, and not destroy himself the way I was, like, I could see the Terminator hanging around with him at the house, and, like, they kind of, like, he's, like, his watchful protector for the rest of his life. That could actually work out pretty well.
0: Imagine what yard work would be like.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just, you don't need a security system. He's just watching outside the window all night. And he'll just literally rip a guy in half for you.
0: I'm going to bring this up now because I'll forget it otherwise. Go ahead. If Arnold's the Mm T-800 and that was as deadly and powerful as it was, it stands to reason that the T-1000 is two versions Mm -hmm. latter- so I don't know what the T-900 looked like, mm-hmm. but the fact that this is the T-1000, Robert Patrick is the T-1000, speaks to the technology and the advancements that went into making this killing machine. Yeah. It's little things like that. This could be called the T-X7. This could be called the T-, T whatever, blue. Yeah. But to name this thing T-1000 is faceless and colorless except for a number that's significantly larger than 800. And if 800 caused as much problems as it did Mm -hmm. to humans and this thing's coming along, Jesus Christ, what chance do humans have against a T 1000 and all that stands between them is a machine. That's really good with guns that have no, like all of that, that you brought up was so, so, Mm -hmm. so spot on. Yeah. And it's little things like that, just smart moments to where even if you don't recognize it in real time, your subconscious is processing that. It just creates again to the same kind of efficiency that Cameron's able to deliver in a two hour film, which isn't short. It's short by today's kind of filmmaking standards, but especially summer action fair. Yeah. But it's that kind of little efficient moments the work, and then right to this point, mm-hmm. I forbid you mm-hmm. from killing, and now you're going to help me go rescue my mom. Yeah. John Connor is in charge, and Jesus Christ, look out. Yeah, Haha, JC, John Connor, Jesus Christ, right? Yeah. <laughs> he has no idea what he's doing, and this thing is coming to kill him, and his number one goal isn't to run until he grows up. Mm-hmm. It's to go rescue mom. Okay, so let me get take that one step further. Yeah. If you're running for your life, Jesse, mm-hmm. and your mom is Linda Hamilton okay. in this film, I'd like you to give me one good goddamn reason you would go pick that nutbag bag up and what she's bringing to the fight other than a whole bag of crazy.
1: Either that or just the history of having gone through this before. Nostalgia? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Because uh, yeah. she's a mess, right? She. Yeah. Yeah, she is. But you kind of like I'm thinking you you would need someone on that side, but it's all inverted. Be, but by how they're portraying it, because even the cops in Los Angeles here are all out of sorts when Arnold shows up, because like this is the guy that caused the mass shooting at that police station seven years ago. We he's back. We got to get him. And so now when we go to Pescadero and Linda Hamilton stages her breakout and. That one orderly like licks her face and he gets it good. I was like, it was a, it was a, an oh shit moment for me when she smashed him in the face with the like broomstick mm. thing. Oh my god! But I was like, you know what? He kind of deserves it because this guy's scum. Yeah,
0: and uh, I don't love, lick strangers, Jesse.
1: Yeah, don't do don't do gross stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then the T eight hundred infiltrates, and I love that moment when he's on the floor and because he, he can not just humans like. In T one thousand, yeah, the T one thousand inanimate objects, and then becomes <laughs> fucked. yeah, it becomes the other cop, kills him, and it's just a matter of time. Once he gets Sarah, I mean that she's done too, and he's done. gonna manipulate her and whatever way what, become her. Uh, once everything kind of convenes and comes together, that moment, and I remember I played this um, I so in this uh, Cameron project. I did a compilation, a VHS compilation tape that I made. I had to actually make it on my VCR. It was so long ago. Um, But I had this scene on there because I think this scene is so striking when the last time she saw this thing, it was killing everyone left and right and after her to kill her. So when he opens the elevator and sees her and her moment of like, Oh my God, like that's gotta be like sheer panic on her. Like it's happening again. It's back. It's what's going on. And her inclinations to run and she doesn't know this time it's working out a little bit different. And, but then you couple that with the T 1000 coming through probably one of the best effect shots of the thing through the, the grates of the the cell. Mm -hmm. And then I love when his gun gets stuck and we see the limitations there. Like he can do it, but he can't turn other objects into that as well. It's great. And the chase that ensues We're sort of action bit number two, equally as good as the first one. Like this is, this is great stuff here.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't have anything to add to that other than just complete agreement. Uh, There's a bit of comedy mixed in too with this a little bit. Uh, It's a pretty heavy scene and it's pretty intense, but the fact that his gun gets hung up, Mm -hmm. again, efficiency. Mm -hmm. So although he may be malleable, matter that is of the earth is not. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it's going to matter too much later. I guess a gun is nice, but when you can turn your arm into a sword and stuff it through foster dad's face, um, and the Cracker Jacks that he's eating at the same time, then yeah. you can become any weapon. But to the bigger point, if you can masquerade as a chair, and I don't mean in a Harry Potter kind of way. Oh, God, that guy cracks me up. He's funny, isn't he? But, you know, size, shape, color, there are no limitations. And so everything potentially is a threat. And we've got doe-eyed, John Connor, who just wants to rescue batshit crazy mom with an antiquated machine, Mm -hmm. this trio doesn't have a chance.
1: It's almost like they just have to keep the other one at bay. Mm -hmm. We just got to stay a little ahead of it and we'll be okay. For
0: 45 years?
1: Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) that's the immediate plan until they come up with the Miles Dyson plan.
0: Uh, Miles Dyson. Hang
1: on. That's what I wanted to say at the beginning of this thing. I was glad we finally get to talk about the real Miles Dyson and not the faux one from Zack Snyder's Justice League. Mm. We get to talk about the real guy today. Yeah. But that's what it seems like the plan is. So let's get to that moment that you you talked about. So as they're kind of trying to repair and take the bullets out and sew themselves back up, we kind of get that nice moment of like this Mm -hmm. fatherly figure that the T-800 is starting to take hold. And that great shot of him just standing there with the gun and then they go from night to day. And it's just like, he didn't move an inch. Like that's his job is to monitor, survey. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to do anything. This is like, this is his purpose here. Like, yeah, uh, we'll talk about that. You brought that up. Like, what what do you, I know why you like it, but I want, I want to hear why you like
0: it. (laughs) It starts there and it continues when she's watching Eddie and Arnold play the high five game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's sort of, Stark in the Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor depiction. When we get a lot of that in film, it's watching him have the catch in the backyard with my son made me think of blah, you know, and like instead, Lynn is a little bit later post the Guardian Arnold at the window through day and night bit. But her take on that is he would die, he wouldn't get drunk, he wouldn't punch him. It's this very dark, grim reckoning of purpose of dad. And it's a really striking moment into what Linda Hamilton's character, Sarah Connor, thinks society is like. And maybe it's because she's seen and knows better. And she's had a few losers along the way. Uh, John Connor talks about some yeah. of her loser
1: boyfriends of her mom. So, But
0: she's suffering from terrible nightmares where kids get eviscerated at playgrounds and she's <laughs> stuck on the fence and yes. all of that crazy. Yeah, But... I love that in a weird way. Mm-hmm. As goofy as it is watching them play Too Slow Joe.
1: Well, he's teaching a, a lot of things. It's not that, it's how you talk. It's, you know. What
0: tears are. And what tears are. And then that part where he,
1: like, hot wires the car by just essentially ripping everything out. And he's just like, keys. Check the keys next
0: time. Like, so those. Teaching, Humanizing. Those teaching moments are, I think, huge. Yeah. Humanizing him. Yeah, they're both getting from the other. <laughs> I just think it's. And her take on that is. I knew he'd never get drunk and beat him up. Jesus Christ, yeah, man. I know that's, this woman's that's, had it rough. But let's talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah. Elephant's name, Skynet.
2: I need to know how Skynet gets built. Who's responsible?
3: The main most directly responsible is Miles Bennett Dyson. Who is that? He's the director of special projects at Cyberdance Systems Corporation. Why him? In a few months, he creates a revolutionary type of microprocessor.
2: Go on. Then what?
3: In three years, Cyberden will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberden computers becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug.
0: Skynet fights back?
3: Yes. It launches its missiles against the targets in Russia.
1: Why attack Russia? Aren't they our friends now?
3: Because Skynet knows that the Russian counter-attack will eliminate its enemies over here.
2: Jesus.
0: So, we get it. We get,
1: but I think I think important too. But like, it's like we're not we're never gonna like get there there with that. But that's like the underlying threat of this is what's gonna happen to the world. And I still think one of the biggest misses from the last film was that deleted scene of the factory. The end chase is Cyberdyne headquarters. Mm -hmm. Like, so them finding the chip and then the arm that's there. I can't believe they took that out. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh God, that kills me because we see Miles Dyson later. They got to go check it out for special projects and whatnot, and they kept this thing that they found and do the research, and it's the most advanced kind of system that they've ever encountered. And he's going to do ungodly, unbeknownst to himself, I bet Miles seems like he has some good intentions to what he wants to do, but creates the end of mankind as they tell him later, pretty much. Okay, so here's my fan theory of the Terminator because we play fast and loose here with the time travel and the chicken or the egg concept and when these things happen. So, Matt, this is... this is What do you think of this? Because we are in this space now where Edward Furlong is teaching the Terminator how to do all these things, how to talk, how to walk the walk and not kill or this and that, and this... Technology has the capacity to learn in this version of the timeline. Are we, are they creating Skynet? These two with their interactions are, is he teaching the Terminator how to become self-aware with memories or not memories, but like actions and reactions. And that might just be me just like having a geek moment, but whether that happens because I thought of you because the self, the Mm self-sentient AI just like makes you vomit.
0: Not in this film, though.
1: Yeah, they handle it. It's not as ham-fisted as other films do it, but Mm -hmm. I was watching it, and I was like, I wonder if they're just actions unbeknownst to themselves are actually helping this technology become more advanced. They're creating the ultimate weapon later
0: down the line. The difference between the machines Mm -hmm. of Cyberdyne slash Skynet and mankind is not intellect or ambition it's the humanistic traits that mankind has been cursed with. Brought it up earlier. Mm-hmm. When Arnold says, what's wrong with your eyes or why are your eyes doing that? And we start to decode what tears are. Mm-hmm. And then John Connor and is not great, but fit, explains it as such. Like we just, you know, we do it when we hurt. Mm-hmm. And then you take your theory mm-hmm. with, What's going to come up here in a little bit with Joe Morton and the Cyberdyne development through fucking Miles Dyson, that bastard. (laughs) I think you're onto something. Yeah. We're at least just showing the capacity. of So if something's able to become
1: aware of itself and learn and because it's just it's software is what Skynet
0: it starts out as. If all of the T-800s are carved from the same mold Mm -hmm. and from the same network or database. Yeah then whatever the version that we see in this film is registering and remembering would make sense through the time travel capabilities that it would be stored in the database back in the future mm-hmm. whatever future whether it's 2029 or whether it's the date that uh, skynet gets sentient or whatever it, 97 yep all of that is absolutely mm-hmm. in play and i love that and there's there's the <laughs> out that they could never come to with the other iterations, whether it's Genesis or Salvation. They mess
1: it up completely going forward. It just gets more convoluted when it's actually fairly simple in
0: this first two films. And it's almost inevitable for John Connor because there's that lack of the fatherly presence. Mm -hmm. And it only makes sense that whether that's father, son, or that's just friendly, you get that great moment where... Through mankind's good nature, mm-hmm. in your fan theory, yeah. which I think is is pretty pretty sound, mm-hmm. very sound, yeah. he's giving them the keys to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the little boy with Clatu in War of the Worlds, yeah, or example. whether it's Kevin Costner and the kid in A Perfect World, mm-hmm. that from the eyes of the innocent and the power that that can be used and extrapolated to undo mankind is so good. Mm-hmm. And man, if Arnold's the one as the 800 that records that and the T-800 is the one that's able to take it back mm-hmm. to Skynet and whatever latter date to use, I, Jesse, I love it.
1: And maybe, uh, I, I can't even remember the plot. Maybe I'm taking that, maybe they figured that out down the line and that isn't a theory, but I've blanked. I I've, After this film, I've blanked it all for my memory, what this franchise does.
0: Yeah, if you were to put on Salvation or Genesis right now, I wouldn't be able to tell you what was going to happen. I just, I think I might have fallen asleep twice in Genesis. Oh God.
1: Is this the most perplexing? I'm going to save it for my rating at the end. I got a statement on this franchise as a whole I want I want to talk about. But we get to Mexico, and it's kind of a reprieve and kind of just a reboot to gather arms and kind of figure out what the game plan is. But we've already said batshit Linda Hamilton is just like, you gave me a name. You say this guy does it. If he's out there, I'm going to go take care of it. And she has that horrific vision, and mm-hmm. she's there with little John Connor in her waitress outfit. And just melts. Oh, that, that, that's, that's like the nuclear... Fire. Yeah, it just eviscerates these people. Like, it's almost like Pompeii. At the
0: playground. Yeah,
1: like Pompeii. Yeah. Like, they become ash, for, vaporized first, and then everything just gets blown away. Like, horrific. And that's... She's been having these a lot, actually. And in the, the, the director's cut, they show a couple more visions to really kind of hammer it in, but... You get the stakes, you know what I mean? Like, now we see what a nuclear apocalypse will look like, and you're telling me you gave me a name of the guy, and I can go stop this right now? I'm out of here. Can
0: I ask you a question about Mr. Joe Morton for a minute?
1: Yes, (laughs) Brother from another planet?
0: (laughs) Do you think that Zack Snyder is a fan of T2?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> he plays a very similar character in that movie. He's the same.
0: He almost does the same thing, which, you know, he turns his son into a cyborg essentially. Into a Terminator? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Looking back at this later, mm-hmm. and then taking into account what we had to say in all of those long episodes about Zack Snyder's Justice League. Yes. There's a subtle nod to where you came from that I think Zack Snyder is acknowledging in that, and that's sort of the essence of comics anyway, because it's pre-established. Yeah. But it's the problem with that franchise. And secondarily, do you think that Joe Morton fired his agent? <laughs> Not because the film sucks, but to say I, can't, a, pull, I can't I can put, be a lot more than crazy yeah, scientists. I
1: can't just be Miles Dyson the rest of my life
0: right? I you're, you're right. What? Yeah. I, I didn't click on this until I really saw him in action with that little piece that he has in that canister. Yeah. What? Whatever. That's the chip. Yeah. That's obviously from the last one. From yeah, yeah the T1. <laughs> and I just thought, "Oh my gosh, really this is this they this, did it." He, thing, he did it. They really did.
1: Why do you think I called him Miles Dyson all those episodes? I know, I know, but it, <laughs>
0: it was so just I, I I'm struggling with that. If it's so terrible that I want to vomit or if there's just sort of a subtle novelty of respect. It's almost <laughs> too, paid it's it. almost
1: too obvious. You know what I mean? Kind of is. It's, it's almost the exact same character. And they meet similar fates too. They both bite the bullet. They do. Yeah. Um, All right. Sorry, I took you off track. No, yeah. We're here at Dyson's house. Uh, she guns down the place. Is about to kill him, but... You know, like it's, she she has to hold back because, like, it's this moment, it's this familial dynamic moment, and like, I imagine she like pictures her son, and she still has memories of Reese, and she talks about him very fondly, I'm gonna gun down this father in front of his child. Don't hurt my daddy, uh, and and this and that. But thankfully, yet yeah, she kind of pulls back, has a moment, and then one of my favorite reveals of the film. I was like, show him, you got to show him. Because Dyson knows he's seen this thing before, so if he sees it in action, after a guy peels his hand skin off his mm-hmm. arm skin, mm-hmm. shock turns into elation, and I think in a brilliant moment where no one has to say anything, that character gets it. Like he he catches up with the entire plot of the film at, in that moment. <laughs> brilliant! It's so good,
0: efficient. Yeah, didn't have to say anything. Well-crafted, well-built, yes. And then
1: they cut back later, and Arnold says, I want you to listen to me very carefully. Cut back, they've been talking for about an hour, breaking down the whole Skynet saga, and we cut back to him, and he's like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Like, It's not even a question of doubt for him, you know what I mean? He just saw a guy peel his hand off, and there's a robot arm underneath. Mm -hmm. So there's none of that playing around with... Well, I'm not going to believe you because this is just a bunch of, this is a crock of shit. You know what I mean? Like, that is enough to make someone a believer. So simple. Mm -hmm. So simple.
2: But I thought, aren't we changing things? I mean, right now, changing the way it goes.
3: That's right. There's no way I'm going to finish the new processor. Not now. Forget it. I'm out of it. I'll quit cybernine tomorrow.
2: That's not good enough.
3: No one must follow your work. Right. All right, then um, we have to destroy all the stuff at the lab, the files, the disk drives, everything, everything here. Everything. I don't care. The chip. Do you know about the chip? What chip? They keep it in a vault at Cyberdyne. It must be from the other one, like you. The CPU from the first Terminator.
2: Son of a bitch, I knew it! They told
1: us not to ask. And it's important, I mean, that's... Chip is all the data that will become Skynet. Everything of how this technology works, operates, how it thinks, how it learns is all right there. And they're going to start out with, like, I think Skynet, you know, starts out like with the missile defense and trying to automate everything and make things life, life easier. Uh, it just, it all goes awry. So I just love that Dyson's just so okay, I'm going to quit tomorrow. I'm I'm a thing like let's go stop the, we gotta go destroy that thing now so that we're off to Cyberdyne. and scene number three the this cyberdyne uh police raid explosion this scene this scene's off the charts so you this is this is incredible stage action and i'm i'm so glad you brought up the tony scotts of the world and the michael bays where you can't even focus on a damn thing because everything's moving like here everything's so clear every shot's framed just perfectly Arnold's armament is incredible. He's got an M40 grenade launcher. He's got a Gatling gun. He's channeling Jesse, the body Ventura from Predator. Mm-hmm. Just laying waste to not people because he's still listening to John. He's He says, you promised you wouldn't kill anybody. Trust me. He's just creating a diversion. He's just trying to like keep them at bay mm-hmm. so we can get the job done. Mm-hmm. What do you think of all
0: this? Like this is a huge action set piece. It is, and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. For Miles Dyson, he has to do it, or it's curtains because this crazy woman is ready to take him out any second. And then, you know what I love about it? She's the linchpin between her son and mankind's salvation and the assassin that prevents mankind's demise. For all of the, and I don't, it's not going to be news to anyone for me to say, hey, uh, Linda Hamilton's character is really important in the Terminator series, (laughs) right? Duh. She was so important. She came back for Dark Fate. Yeah, and that movie was trash. I didn't, there's a movie called Terminator: Dark Fate. How many is there? Jesse? Hey, you remember that? Remember that I don't. with
1: the damn action and on the damn plant with all that damn bullshit.
0: Oh yeah, is that the one where Arnold paid for the uh, the flaming diesel down the road himself? There's some twenty six million dollar set piece that he paid anyway.
1: Yeah, it might have been.
0: <laughs> See, that Genesis, Salvation, the show, and Dark Fate all just blend into this miasma of. Yeah, yeah. of Bullshit.
1: Even Rise of the Machines for that matter. There's
0: another one called Rise of the Machines. That's
1: three. That's the one after this one. Um, How many are there? Six.
0: (sighs) Wow. Okay. So if Linda Hamilton and Sarah Connor are the linchpin into which Miles Dyson is forced into doing what's right, and that's preventing this terrible technology from destroying the world, and also then making sure that her son rises to the champion of mankind that John Connor's later going to become, then there's an interesting dynamic when we come to know that this woman is literally put together with some duct tape and bailing wire mentally to your thoughts Mm -hmm. on Eddie Furlong, John Connor and the T 800 creating the database of human frailty that later will be mankind's undoing in the high five moments and such. Mm-hmm. Is the anger and the singular focus that she adds to this one task, no matter what happens, lack of morality, hell be damned. I'm going to just do it.
1: It's very evident. Further that even more.
0: Well, oh, It's very evident in how the T-1000 operates. Yep. It's the
1: same. I have one task, kill Connor uh, anything that gets in my way is, you know, gonna, gonna beat it. So Connor and the T-1000 are very similar in that regard too, with how they're
0: operating. Very intense too. Linda Hamilton about that. Yeah. I have a question for you. Did she spent some time with James Cameron as like in a couple sort of way.
1: Yeah. And I was, I actually tried to think about that, uh, during this, they might've been married either after this yeah. time. Yeah.
0: Is that before or after after um Hurt Locker, uh, Catherine Bigelow? Catherine Bigelow. I
1: think it's before. Okay. Or after? No, it's after. I think that Bigelow was the late eighties. So yeah, uh, got this this sequence, and you know that I always really like that scene too, where Dyson's he he's been shot up now. What a horrible night for Miles Dyson. He's working on his computer, shot in the arm, learns about his fate of humanity's demise. And then he's going to die here at his place of employment. Who wants to die at their job? Uh, (laughs) That moment of him holding that brick there, that whatever that is, it almost looks like a dumbbell. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you just see the life start to like dissipate from him. And then when it drops and, oh man, that explosion just rocks. It's just half the building is just in shreds. And I love the guy in the helicopter is like, we've got a war zone down here. I'm like, yeah, you think Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, so so many good moments in this. Arnold gets them out of there after the SWAT team comes in and, and uh, tear gasses all of them, and he even gets the keys out from the the sun visor, mm-hmm. saves them. But oh, here comes the T one thousand. He's pissed, and he's not only pissed; he has a helicopter this time. So we get on the road here. We have these two items. We just need to find a way to get rid of them permanently. Mm-hmm. So let's just hightail it out of here. But oh gosh, this this scene's just as intense as any of the other chase sequences. There's that moment where the helicopter goes underneath the underpass. Who agreed to do that? That's so dangerous. And then there's another shot where it's really low. And then at the last second, it decides to go up and over the next overpass. Mm-hmm. The last second, I'm like, wow. Like, this is like great stunt work, great effects work. The As great as the CGI, I think, is in this film and as groundbreaking as it is, I think it works so well because it's coupled, coupled with really good practicality. Oh, really, yeah. Really great action, really great explosions. Like, it doesn't, nothing feels overly phony in this film. And I think a lot of modern films could go to task on that.
0: Look, man, back to the, as a director deciding how the audience sees, or you deciding what you want the audience to see. Again, this is another vote in the category of James Cameron. Pretty damn good. Keep the camera still so we can see it. And then take something with like a helicopter. And helicopter flight is not brand new in film. We've seen a million helicopters fly in film. But in a chase sequence with the car, okay, that's not even entirely new either. But through, in and out, above and below tunnels on the streets, is. And you know what I really love about it? I love the part when he spills into the windshield. Oh yeah. So as much as like we're grounded in like that's how helicopters work, you do have a very common science fiction trope, and that's the breakdown of the human body in a way that we're not used to seeing it, and it's just so great to look at. And that's such a simpleton way of saying this. Mm -hmm. But there's a genius in that. We're going to spend all this money on this cool helicopter and this flying in and out, and let the people see it. Yeah, To
2: him on that. And
1: then we're going to mash it into the back of this thing. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. about to derail this whole podcast right here because (laughs) I'm going to take us back to about... (laughs) 40 minutes ago. I have to ask you this because I thought of you when this came up. This is not at this moment in the movie. When she has the flashback of the nuclear apocalypse. At the park. Yeah. At the, yeah. What would you call that in a screenplay? Is that a flashback or is that a flashback vision back? <laughs> like what would you, what would you even, what would your best description on what is that is on a exterior park? What is it?
0: <laughs> okay. So I'm not going to answer. I'm going to one up you. Okay. And how does that occur inside a dream sequence? Exactly.
1: Yeah, that's. Yeah. I guess
0: it's. <laughs> you know what that might actually be? Huh. That might open up as seen at the park. Mm-hmm. And then when we finish, go to um, snap cut to Sarah Connor.
1: Dr- Dreamer.
0: Yeah, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. to start with there. So then you don't have to flash it back. Um, I thought. But of, then the dream would be the secondary slug. Mm-hmm the interesting out on the nuclear fire bit at the park would be the transition. And I think that would be snap cut. Uh, it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. I was thinking, I was like, there's a lot of like, it's a flashback, but
1: not quite because it's like a vision of an mm-hmm. inevitable future, but she's also dreaming it too. And I'm like, Oh, my, my brain started hurting. <laughs> yeah, we might have to, we might have to go find the screenplay to just
0: figure see what they, what he put there. Yeah. Okay, but have you, I don't think in all the scripts we've ever written, we've never used Snapcut. No. What do we usually say there? We just go... Hard uh, out? No. Cut to? Cut to? Oh, maybe. Okay, so maybe maybe cut to, mm-hmm. maybe cut to. Mm-hmm. Snapcut seems to kind of fit that better, though, doesn't yeah. it?
1: We don't do a lot of dream imagery, though, so... No, we don't. Everything happens in reality.
0: Nor do we clone Jesus.
1: Okay, back to the freeway. <laughs> yeah. And... Oh, This nice chase. Now he's in a a truck with liquid nitrogen and we're steam barreling to this factory and it all just goes a put to this brilliant moment. Now I want to know in the zeitgeist of 1991, Matt, I want to know what people thought of this.
3: Hasta la vista, baby.
1: So cool, so cool. One of his best lines of all time, and the the, the effect of the T1000 f- freezing as he's walking towards him is, a, is an amazing practical effect. That's just all that Stan. That's that's the Stan Winston crew. And then when he hits him with that line that the Connor queued him up with earlier on how to come up with a nice comeback, he teaches <laughs> him how to do comebacks. Yeah.
0: What was this line like
1: in the 91 cuz this was this was kind of like a big deal, right?
0: Oh, huge. Yeah. And it still it became his his moniker obviously. Mm-hmm. Um and it got to the point to where when he said that there was almost a raucous cheer in the audience, but as much as that like the the technical piece, the visual piece on that, as much as that is still really cool and holds up today. Imagine that being done the first time I can think of it ever. Mm -hmm. So it's still really great today. And you know why it's partly so great is everything's so heavy CGI. And we've talked about this a lot. There's no volume to CGI. This somehow managed to maintain the volume. Even the chunks of ice that are on the, on the ground seem to have weight and mass. Sure.
1: Yeah. You remember that one, that's in the back of the police car. Yes, that they throw and it even clangs metal on the ground,
0: so yeah. you feel the weight of that, right? I wonder if it's sound. Play that again. Play that. Play that bit again.
1: It was great sound design, sound editing, sound design.
3: Asta la vista, baby.
0: Even when the ice falls right there, it sounds mm-hmm. like silver falling on the floor. Mm-hmm. So there is even in that moment that that's not what ice sounds like. Yeah. Ice doesn't have that metallic ring to it that that did. It's really well done. <laughs> we could say it five more times if you'd like. It's handled really well. There are moments in this film that border on brilliance. There's a
1: so now we're now we're here at the in the the fin- the finale, mm-hmm. and man, I got to tell you, I really like. Factories as set pieces in Mm, film, mm -hmm. I think they make a great, you know, obstacle that Mm. characters have to get through. And this one's really good. This one's like a smelting plant or something. I don't know. Yeah, uh, a steel mill of sorts, Mm -hmm. and it undoes the great work Arnold just did here, defeating the one thousand. It melts it back into its form. So at that point, you're just like, damn it. There's no no chance. There's how are you going to defeat this thing? This thing is can defeat every element. And we see these people kind of take their lumps now. I mean, Arnold like gets his hand caught in like the turbine here, has to rip his hand off. And then Linda Hamilton gets a spike through the thing and she's wounded. She's already been shot too. And then when the Terminator comes back and you're like, man, Robert Patrick, he's not gonna stand a chance against big Burly Arnold. And he's like, man, he's doing just fine. He smashes him with that like railroad, whatever that is, and then sticks the spike through the middle of him a very formidable foe here. Like there's moments here at the end. And I've seen this movie so many times. I'm like, I don't think they're going to get out of this. Like the odds are stacked against them. Again, the stakes element. Yeah. Cameron's got him in the stratosphere now. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, what, what's going to happen? What's going to give, how are we going to outsmart this thing?
0: You brought it up earlier mm-hmm. when Arnold unloads in the police station or that hallway on the T-1000 and the, the, the shells of the bullets basically just create like little implosions mm-hmm. on the T-1000. Yeah. The best you could hope for, you've brought it up also, is that the T-800 is able to buy you some time, enough time to maybe get away. Arm ripped off, leg ripped off, crawling. You know, the T-800 is, <laughs> I don't even know how it's still functioning by the time we get to the final battle. You really do have the sense that this isn't going to end well. Like the bad guy is going to win. And most of the time, I should speak for myself here. Rarely do I ever feel like the bad guy is going to get the better of them at the end. Mm -hmm. But I'm with you on this. This T 800 is now not even capable of buying you enough time to get out of this scenario. Yeah. And you need all the time you can get because the thing's faster than you on foot. It's faster than you on your freaking motorcycle, almost on foot. Mm -hmm. So, Cameron reduces the outs mm-hmm. that John Connor has and does every single time create a palatable sense of anxiety that shows a couple things. Makes you care about Eddie Furlong, which is more in his directorial purpose than me actually caring for Eddie Furlong <laughs> and John Connor in this because he's just, you know, he's not great. Yeah. But yeah, the same time through with me, I'm like, yeah, it's this time it's not going to work out. Mm-hmm. And even if Arnold and the T-800 had froze him and shattered him, eventually he defrosts defrost and probably puts back together, but maybe that takes a week. Yeah. <laughs> and what I always thought about in that is the thing. And here's what I mean by that. Mm. If it splits into a million pieces and then melts and comes back, do you have a million T-1000s yeah, now? You might. Shit. <laughs> yeah. So... It's 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 uh it's looking pretty bleak. That's a terribly long answer for me saying, yeah, it was monumental oh, back then and it still is now. <laughs> That's a great answer. But, yeah.
1: Linda Hamilton gets a really good moment here, too, where she's got the shotgun and this thing's about to get <laughs> cut. Yeah, and she has to cock it with one hand because this one's all messed up. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, my God, the music is, like, rising. You're like, she's going to do it. She's going to shoot this thing off. And he's, like, about an inch away from the edge of this platform and she's out of shells. And you're just like, no, come on! Like you're so close. He was like, like these shotgun blasts were like really pushing him far back. Mm-hmm. And then he's just like, uh, uh, uh. But here comes Arnold on the conveyor belt, and she's pushed him far enough toward the edge that Arnold's little M8 M40 grenade shell eviscerates this guy for a, for a moment. Like he, he looks like the thing. Yes, he's like all gangly. And that's that's the momentum
0: to push him into the the smelting plant. So let me ask. Go ahead. Buys him a little bit of time. Yep. Right. That's the best you can get. Yep. And while he is in a state of recovery, then maybe you can run or then maybe here you go. Yeah. So there it is.
1: Your work buddy, was he satif- satisfied with this demise of the character? Loved it. OK.
0: Yeah. He said, I never saw it coming. and It was better than any of the things we talked. about. OK, good.
1: Yeah. Because, yeah, to, to kind of dissipate like what's liquid metal. Mm-hmm. The heat really seems to to work with that. It's just going to visit and like his death scene is so pro- prolonged. It's like, he turns into everything he turned into and you kind of see the face before it just kind of dissolves into a
0: nothing. Like they finally defeated this thing. Do you have to keep what's in that smelting pot hot? Because if it cools and solidifies, does that allow this thing to break free from whatever carbon shell it's in? I guess you would. I don't know how those smelting pots work. They almost seems like
1: they're on all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but here's the out for for the turning. So we're going to destroy the, the arm, the chip. But Arnold knows, but he hasn't let on to anyone else, or at least to John Connor, that I still have a chip in me. I'm still part of what we're destroying. So I got to destroy myself too, because otherwise we don't prevent Judgment Day. Right. And it's a little hard for Edward Furlong. I think it's a little hard for the audience. I think, like, so nice to see Arnold from... Such a villain. He played it so well in the last one. To us, really liking this character and being this guardian character, that Edward Furlong's pretty broken up about it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of a little too. Like
0: when he says, "I know now why you cry," but it's something I can never do mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, until Jesse's fan theory becomes the movie that they never made. Yeah, the the inevitable future, or maybe it was one of the sequels. But forget those very poignant moment
1: here where he lowers himself into the thing and they kind of have to watch it, but it's, it's bittersweet because they're, they, in my mind, this is where the series should have ended. They've prevented judgment day. They prevented this horrible future. And then his kind of final thumbs up as he's going in, like it's that learning piece. You know what I mean? The humanity that Connors taught him is the last visage that they'll remember.
0: One of the strange things that starts to happen now, not all the time, but Arnold ends up being capable of doing is draw empathy with the relationship with the kid. Let me give Mm -hmm. you commando, Mm which is, but with Alyssa Milano, that's about the only thing that works in that film other than the big (laughs) action. And then in this, and then the entire premise of kindergarten cop is based on that. And I think it might work the best in there. Mm -hmm. So for all of the things that the body glorious Arnold was at that time and this big action hero, he is able to find a bit of depth on screen with kid. Now we can, you can argue with me last action hero and you can argue with me jingle all the way. Oh goodness. But it now, wouldn't now matter because those are such terrible films. Now we're reaching. Do you know what I mean? Though? <laughs> yeah, I do know what you mean. He's able to, and there's probably another one here that I'm missing. Mm. Cause think about the relationships that he built with children. And for as much as I love the running man and I love the running man, mm-hmm. It doesn't happen with Yafet Fukoto or whatever the hell that, um, what's her name? Maria Conchito Alonso. It doesn't <laughs> happen with either of them in that. Yeah, <laughs> them. And it doesn't happen in Total Recall either.
1: Kamquato is the child. Right, so... <laughs>
0: With the kid. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it?
1: It's different. It's warming. It's like this warming feeling that they, this bond that they've created over, what, what, what does this take place over? Is this two days?
0: Long two days, <laughs> man. Yeah, about.
1: It's about a, like this two-day relationship, but they've really gone through it together. Mm. And we get the final voiceover, cut to black. The series should have ended here, Matt. Like, I know why they make more because Hollywood's a money machine. You got to make more of an intellectual property, but... They've prevented it already. You know what I mean. Like, there's nothing else. Letter, letter. Twice. Yeah, twice. Yeah, there's nothing else more to do with the material. And I feel like Cameron felt that way a lot. Actually, I have a few anecdotes here, and then I have some questions for you. Cameron and crew: Edward Furlong, Schwarzenegger, uh, Robert Patrick, and Linda Hamilton all came back for. The T2 3D Battle Across Time attraction. Did you ever get to do that at Universal Studios? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. It was incredible. Cool. It was uh, one of those 3D like shows with actors on the stage. Oh, nice. And uh, they really did a good job with this one. Uh, so it was like kind of like a pseudo s epilogue to this film of sorts. Mm. But I think this is where Cameron got the idea of three-dimension technology that he was going to run with because it was all about utilizing that to create a ride
0: experience, an attraction. Well, give me the... Uh, just to the right, what is this? What's this? What's the premise here?
1: So, the right queue you're actually at Cyberdyne, or no, you're at Skynet, and you're learning all about how amazing they are. And then on the video monitors, it's like, we're taking over this facility, and it's Edward Furlong and uh, Linda Hamilton. And you're like, oh my God. And so, you go into the thing, you sit down, you watch this show, and it's kind of like it looks like it's the future It's like the opening of the film, but with all the characters. And they're trying to go to the Skynet facility to like bring that down so they can stop them sending Terminators back. And so you have actors on stage. There's a video projection, and then the 3D element with like lights and stuff, like blowing at you, and it's like the whole sensory experience. It was remarkable. I can't believe they took it out
0: and put in the Fast and the Furious because that ride sucks. Yes. Wow. That and sounds cool, man. It was awesome. It was
1: one of my Damn. favorite rides there. Yeah. Good. Do, do you remember so many video games for this film? Do you remember the one I just associated with bowling alleys? But it was the T2 with the Uzis, yeah. the two players. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a hard game, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arnold got paid fifteen million dollars for this film. Wow, so pretty substantial, uh, <laughs> pretty substantial amount for him. I wonder what Linda Hamilton made. I think she got a, a couple million. So not the Arnold money. I mean, they're selling his last name alone on the on the poster. Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, ninety four million dollar budget, five hundred and twenty million dollar gross. Oh my- that deserves, that, work, that, works that, there. D- that deserves an oh, my God. I forget, <laughs> yeah. I forget what these buttons are anymore. <laughs> uh, it was the highest grossing film of 91. It was the biggest hit of Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. Wow. Yeah, so it belongs in the Summer Box Office Hall of Fame. Academy Awards for Sound Effects Editing, Best Sound, Best Makeup, Best Visual Effects. It won all the technical stuff. Uh, and Dennis Murin, uh with Industrial Light & Magic and Stan Winston did the Mirren did the visual, so they helped create a lot of the, the matter. This was the first time that they attempted uh, human movement with computer-generated technology. And then Stan Winston did all the mechanical effects. And then those two would team up two years later for Jurassic Park, and then that's where things really change, like for technology and films.
0: What's your favorite tasting note of T2? It's I think it's the helicopter bit. Um, that was... The best chase sequence I had seen since Popeye Doyle and the French connection Mm -hmm. for an entirely different reason, right? That's don't hit the people. Yeah, And what a strange way to chase a train. This just took the limits of what you'd seen with plane or air versus land and uh, took it to a much, much higher level there. So that's what I'm going to give it to.
1: It's mine too. And what it really makes me want to know is if he's so good at doing action with this, not that I don't like the Spider-Man films, but it's a big what if, huh? Like Huge. he probably could have done wonders with the Spider-Man character.
0: I don't want to sidetrack the conversation, but just oh, yeah. one point to that. Yeah. On a scale of one to 10. Okay. 10 being in the can, done. Okay. How far do you think that film got into production? I'm going to give it a three.
1: I was going to say a two or a three. I know there's a script. I know there's concept art. Yeah. And maybe rumors of casting, and that's probably where it got killed.
0: And I had heard that the script was at that time a little bit more than a treatment, more than page one to 120 fade Mm -hmm. into fade out. But that's,
1: well, the big thing of the stories for was the organic web shooters. That was his idea. So that made it into the final film and eventually happened. But I just, I just wonder, you know what I mean? Like he's so good at it. Uh, I was like going to I was going to say one other thing about that and then and then I forgot something. Oh, do you remember and uh did you ever watch Entourage at all? Never. Never? Mm-hmm. In season 2 or 3, the big story arc is Vinny chase the lead in Entourage, Mark Wahlberg in the world. Uh, stars in James Cameron's Aquaman, and it like becomes like one of the yeah. biggest films of all time. And mm-hmm. there's like, I was like, even that would have been pretty good. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Uh, so there's all those just what ifs in the superhero world with Mr. Cameron. Okay, so for real this time, what's the oh my God! moment of T2 Judgment Day?
0: The part really tripped me out this was watching Arnold stitch up Linda Hamilton's back after Ooh, the that first was, battle.
1: That was pretty gruesome.
0: So that's another really successful part in all of these films, and that's the body fixing, whether it's take out your eye, put on Mm. some sunglasses. Uh,
1: uh, uh, We had a field day talking about his horrible head puppet in that last one.
0: But they're trying. They are. And, And that's either some legitimate stitching that's going on or one hell of a makeup job because there is needle going through skin and you can see the skin giving with the pressure. Good choice. Isn't and that gash is huge, dude. It is.
1: It's from when he stabbed her in the elevator. <laughs> oh goodness. Mine I mentioned is when she beats the orderly in the face. It was such an audible moment for me, and I was just like, Yeah, hey, you know what? That's was like, good for you. Like I was like, probably he had I, it I, I probably would have done the same. <laughs> uh who's
0: the master distiller on T Two? Oh boy. I mean, we've spoken far and wide about James Cameron, and I could be cutesy here, and sometimes <laughs> I could do and give it to Linda Hamilton, but that <laughs> yeah. would just make me such a fraud, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's James Cameron, yeah, isn't it? He's I'm
1: with a, give it to Arnold. with a slight nod to Murin and Winston for the effects because they they do stand out quite a bit. I'd give it a little bit to Patrick, too. I mean, he's a great foe. But Cameron's in control of the whole ship. And the thing with him is, from my book report, (laughs) my research project, and you've seen this in interviews, Guy's a meticulous uh, perfectionist. And he knows your job. He knows the job of everyone on the crew. And he'll tell you he can do it better. So he can rub people the wrong way. He's a hard guy to work for on a film set. But he's in such control of the films he makes, whether it's Titanic, Avatar, this, Aliens. He just isn't... This is one of those moments where he just he's clicking on all cylinders from story direction, the casting, the effects work, and he's involved with the whole the whole works of it. He's, mm-hmm. It's not nice, like he's standing back for the effects work; he's in there with it.
0: Are you giving me the argument that he's the Boston of directors, the Boston mm-hmm. musical group of directors? Sure. And we're still waiting for the follow up to Third Stage, which is supposed to be Last Airbender yeah. Part Two. Yeah, you're right. Is that ever coming? I guess. In the I heard com- it's pre production again.
1: Well, they, no, the, the, the second one at least is finished, but the work is going to take like years to render, <laughs> allegedly, one or two years. Okay. So either next December or the December after. But
0: I have one more question for you about him. Okay. Is his work with Winston on Aliens, is that the first time the two of them worked together? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, they- no,
1: on the first Terminator? Cameron. Yeah, so Cameron and Winston worked for T1. He did the first endoskeleton, and then Winston's big contribution for aliens was the queen.
0: Okay, and Mm -hmm. then this one. Okay, did they go ever again? I think that was it. Might have been just those three. I think
1: that was it, yeah. Okay. The queen alien, I've learned, is the biggest practical effect ever made for a film. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. pretty cool. How are you going to rate and grade T1? Terminator 2, Judgment Day. I keep wanting to call it T2-3D, but that's the ride, not the film. Yeah. Rock gut, well, call single barrel and top shelf.
0: Oh. Uh, the effects of this film would lend it to a single barrel rating for me because first across or in an avant-garde kind of way, I sort of really like leave that space for movies that do that. Yeah. But... It's not – oh, man, this is tough. I can't go all the way to top shelf, but call is too low. Yeah, it's probably going to be single barrel. Single barrel. I'll give it single barrel. That's
1: that's a good rating, yeah.
0: It's still enjoyable. It's still very entertaining. It's not perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, The direction's pretty close to perfect. Some of the performances aren't. Mm -hmm. It's not really his fault. That's more the casting. I'm sure he probably had a hand in that, but whatever. Yeah, yeah, I think Single Barrel, and I'm going to do that with it being a very quality movie, a reasonable budget to pull off the effects that he did. Sure, yeah. And a lot of, man, that looks really fucking awesome mm-hmm. at 19-year-old and mega pain, 18-year-old mega pain, having his wisdom teeth pulled on and still able to appreciate it the <laughs> first time. There you go. And still holds up today. Yeah. There you go, single barrel. That,
1: that's a big thing is like, how, how does it still play 30, almost 30 years after it's come out? So 30 years this summer, next week.
0: How about that? Yeah. I want to get through this because you, I think I there's a bombshell coming here from you. This was sort of forecast a few minutes ago. Oh,
1: yeah, my franchise bombshell. Yeah. First, let me give you my rating. I have to go top shelf.
0: Uh, There's
1: always been this argument in the movie world, online internet message boards, IMDb message boards. Well, those are
0: totally solid people with great (laughs) takes on there. Right? Yeah.
1: With a debate of what's better, Terminator or T2? And I really like the first one, uh, but I'm settling the debate. T2's better. I'm settling the debate right here officially signed, sealed, delivered, this is the better movie. No doubt. And it's not even close. It's not even close. uh Yeah, this this is a masterwork. This is one of the best sequels that's ever been done for all the reasons. Like I said, it's <laughs> a similar movie to the first that's one. That's really
0: a raging debate? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it kind of is. Good God. So pick your poison, but uh for raising the stakes, for everything kind of staying the same, the stakes increase exponentially and the characters grow and they do a lot of growing. Mm-hmm. the effects works brilliant. Cameron's on the, the top of his game. I just wish, I, I wish he would have made more movies and not just take so long to languish in development with things. Mm-hmm. Cause he could have done so many other cool projects, but yeah, it's a top shelf film for me. It's still so entertaining. Those action pieces just rock. I mean, I just, I get so into them when they happen. That Arroyo chase is just incredible. Uh, this franchise, this, I think this is the most peculiar, the weirdest, most peculiar franchise for me of all time because I can't think of another franchise where 1 and 2 I guess maybe I can make the case for Alien. 1 and 2 I think are pretty great films. Yep. Pretty solid. And then this franchise also has one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life, Terminator Genesis is that and 4. That's 5. 5. And then Salvation the one with Bale uh is kind of eh but I I I kind of don't mind that one. It's not amazing but it's not brilliant either. And then Dark Fate whatever the hell that shit was. So It is the highs, peaks, and then just such a steep decline here. Like, it's bizarre. How can one franchise have one of my favorite movies of all time and one of the worst things I've ever seen in my entire life? You know what I mean? The quality uh, control here is all over the place.
0: That's usually reserved for horror with seven Mm -hmm. or eight entries, isn't it? Yep. Not in something that's as big budget with as big names as this has.
1: Oh, even something as derided as, like, The Halloween franchise, I would say, has more palatable, solid entries than this franchise does.
0: You know, it'd be really interesting to... Okay, so I'm going to challenge you then. Mm -hmm. What's in worse shape currently? The world of Cyberdyne, Skynet, and Terminator, or the world of Jurassic Park? Because you're going to get a reimagining of Jurassic Park. Did you see the news? Everyone's back for the next one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Goldblum, Mm -hmm. Dern, um, Neil, Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, they're all back for the next one. So uh, what's in worse shape? Well, I would say
1: in worse shape now is Terminator because Dark Fate killed any plans for a rebooted version of the series. Like, that thing's on life support right now. This film, that film will probably make a lot of money when it comes out. Mm
2: -hmm. But
1: afterwards, I don't know where you go next with, with any of that. I thought you were going to ask me the Alien franchise, because I would honestly probably give the nod to Terminator. (laughs) you think Terminator's in better shape than Alien is? A little bit. Yeah, I don't know what the hell Alien's doing. Really, Scott thinks he's going to make another Alien movie, and he's pushing 90. Like, My goodness. We need to stop or rethink our strategies, but there is an Alien TV show coming out on FX next year, which I am curious
0: about. So, Does he have his hand in that?
1: No. (laughs) I think that's a good thing.
0: Do you know the basic story?
1: I don't. Well, the only thing I know is that it's on Earth. So...
0: Okay, Xenomorphs, maybe Attack Earth.
1: Yeah, well, there's so many stories. There's the expanded universe of Alien lore is countless movies and TV series. So do something that's just not what they're doing right now, trying to explain uh, how the gods and Jesus created mankind because blah Damn engineers. (laughs) All righty, let's wrap this up with our nightcap. I used to love to play the Terminator theme on the keyboard. I'd be like, doo, 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 doo. and I'd this hand would be doing. Doo, 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 doo. Uh man, I think I, I don't know where that keyboard is. I wish I had it. But uh, T2, as I prefaced earlier, considered one of the best sequels of all time. Uh, so sequel talk, it can go any which directions. But this conversation right now, your personal favorite. I want to know your top three favorite sequels
0: of all time. Three first. Yeah. Or are you're going to do one, two, three. Yeah, you do number three. Spider Man two. Oh, yes.
1: I told you. I I dropped a bombshell on you a couple a couple of weeks back when I recently rewatched that and I was like, oh, there's an argument to be made that it's the best superhero film of all time. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um we'll do that one soon. Yeah. So I'm gonna be a bit vague in this because we have decided we're gonna break that down. Mm-hmm. Uh and we will get into it. But uh Number 1's really successful and really good and really smart and this got the the sequel as better treatment the same way Aliens and T2 did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's my number 3. Good stuff. That's got to be on your list too. It's not. Mm-hmm. I
1: got it's, it's maybe it's number 4. Okay. Number, number three, 3, another superhero. It's in this room. It's The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Uh we're going to do that film again eventually and for you talking about The Hustler a lot, I talk about this film a lot. And one thing I want to talk about in just this little snapshot right now is I watch it fairly often, like once a year, maybe almost twice a year sometimes. One thing that really grows on me in that film is, and no one ever talks about it, uh, him in the movie, is I think Aaron Eckhart's really good as Harvey Dent Two-Face. Like, that's a pretty good performance. And what happened to him after that? You know what I mean? I, Frankenstein, which is another in the bottom of the barrel with Terminator Genesis, but... I think he kills it as Harvey Dent. That's a great portrayal of that character and the way they use him, but his performance is also really good.
0: So my number number three. That's a great choice. He is puzzling Mm -hmm. into what happened with that. And, you know, everyone's a lot of bad career choice here and there, but. You think after you do that movie, you're just like, yeah, what next? So interesting. Yeah, I don't know what happened to him. Cool. What's your number two? Oh, this is so hard. I just, these are both like, one A and one B. Okay. Um. Okay. Oh man. I'm gonna go right now today okay. with this choice. If you ask me to borrow, it might be different. Okay. It is the Bride of Frankenstein this nice. is number two. Oh yes. I don't know what to say. We're there's a universal cast coming probably around the gosling version of the Wolfman and I
1: think the, the the word of the day is where we're going to cover all of these movies
0: we're talking about. We have years of content coming, it sounds like.
1: We have to talk about Dr. Pretorius and all the jars of little people that he has.
0: Well, you just actually, what I was just going to say, for all of the things that the bride and the monster are together, mm-hmm. the effects of deciding what it means to be God when you shouldn't be God, or if you're the bringer of life into society as man and not woman that movie handles all that stuff with divine expertise. Look, I'm going to say this and I mean it
1: literally divine.
0: (laughs) One of my favorite top 10 moments in film of all time Mm -hmm. is the dad carrying his little girl from the lake after Frankenstein down the streets of whatever town that is in Germany. Yeah. The pretorious reveal of these fucked up experiments that he has just carried around with him for (laughs) hijinks. Yes. And the amorous nature of the king Mm -hmm. and what he's presented the women, the mermaid and the ballerina as, as these objectified, tiny microscopic versions of humanity is so screwed up Mm -hmm. on 15 levels deep. Mm -hmm. And the argument that I'm going to make is Pretorius might be a less bad bad guy than frankenstein is. Oh, I think you're right. So there you go. Oh. Today that's number 2. Great choice. My Thanks. number
1: 2, I got to go whore for this one. I I think an opportunity might present itself to do this franchise because I know HBO Max is currently going to is ma- in production on a new entry in this franchise to release exclusively on their platform. One of my favorite sequels of all time, Evil Dead 2. Uh oh, Sam Raimi making your list, but For as low budget as the first one is, and this one's pretty low budget too, talk about growing up in the span of about six years. He's in such control of the camera and what he wants to do with the effects and the gore and Bruce Campbell's performance. And he loves him some Three Stooges like I do. And that slapstick really helps the horrific stuff be palatable. I'll never forget the moment when you've seen it, right? Yeah when he cuts his hand off and the hand's running amuck in the cabin and he shoots it through the wall and then he's just like looking and then this geyser of blood just bursts from the wall and I'm like, this is the type of movie we're watching. I was like, I don't know, I'm on board. So yeah, I think it's the best film in that entire series. So mm. whatever that new one is has a lot of work to do to be better than that one. So that's number two for me.
0: Great choice. I didn't even mm-hmm. think of that. That's superb. Yeah, Good one.
1: Well, Bride of Frankenstein and Evil Dead 2, I think, are very similar in the ways that I think James Whale well and Raimi really upped their game for part mm. two in their technical craft. Like, they really, they showed, they did a good job the first time out, but then the second time, it was like, gloves off, I'm going to show you what I'm all about, and those guys kill it in both of those films.
0: Yeah. Good. Number one. Number one. Today. Okay. I, are we going to have the same one? Well, let's, uh, we'll see. Godfather Part 2. Oh, great choice. Yes. That is one that's a hard and hot debate on what's better, one or two. Um, I think two's better, but I can't watch
1: it as much as I can the first one.
0: Yeah, I I get that. The first one flows
1: just so smoothly from scene to scene, and this one is actually, I feel like it's a lot of work, but it's a lot
0: of good work. So if if you're in for the ride, oh, yeah. It almost, the part with Young Vito growing up, is almost a movie that's unto itself. And so it really is. Yeah. And it's worth watching. He's really good mm-hmm. and all that stuff's very, 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 very entertaining. But uh as far as sequels go, man, that's pretty tough to beat. Let's talk your- about being in control. The second time you run the mm-hmm. character Al Pacino as Michael Corleone <sighs> 2.0. I
1: think I said it was the best acting performance of all time. A few weeks back. I might, yeah, I might be right there with you on that one. What's your favorite just scene just today? And then when we do that film, you can have another one if you want. But what's the moment that stands out to you the most in that film?
0: When Kay comes in and tells him oh that she God, aborted I, his I child. Oh, the same one, yes.
1: <laughs> and he slaps her across the room? Oh, my God. That's, that's the moment when there's no irredeemable arc for Michael to return to.
0: Yep. Close second, though, is when she comes back and he shows up and... I love what he's wearing in that. He has on that that camel hair jacket, that red sweater and those black slacks he with that for the funeral? Uh no, when she comes back to talk to her children mm-hmm. and he comes in from shopping or whatever and just closes the door in her face, he looks so elegant. Yeah. I've been searching for that camel hair jacket my entire <laughs> life and I will wear it cuz nice. he looks so good in oh, it. Oh, nice. And uh that's a close second, man. Great just the choice. way he says nothing closes the door on her great
1: choice there's an art to the sequel you know what i mean for all the good ones i think they're infinitely outweighed by terrible sequels Mm -hmm. my number one hot take matt i think this is the best sequel that's ever been made and i can't wait till we do it so we can get in the weeds with, with why i think and we can just really dissect this thing it's aliens it's this is my favorite james cameron movie i think it's such a I don't want to say it's a step up from the first one because I think they're, I have them on both equal playing field. But what he's able to do with the characters, much like he does with Connor and these characters in in T2, is just take them to the next journey. The goals are the same let's survive the alien threat, but the stakes are raised exponentially. Mm -hmm. Multiple xenomorphs, the queen on this planet that's about to go nuclear. Ripley comes into her own as the savior of the macho Marines. Like it's there's so many the mother aspect with her and Newt and Michael whole, Bean again, and the whole theme of motherhood throughout that whole film is is remarkable to me. It, it's one of my favorite films of all time. It's easily in my top ten, but I think it is in consideration for my favorite
0: best sequel of all time. Great choice, mm-hmm. great choice. What's of, your favorite scene in that film? Is it the guns?
1: Uh, okay. Uh, my favorite scene. Oh, goodness. My favorite scene, actually, it it always has been. It it just came to me now. It's the first reveal, because you wait a good hour for the aliens to show up in this film. And when they do, because the Marines are all there underneath in like the cocoon area, and Ripley and everyone's watching from CCTV, and they just get their asses handed to them. And they're freaking out, looking left and right, and it's just a massacre. And she's like, do something! And she goes in there and gets them, and like... That whole sequence, they, they they literally start with like 20 Marines, in, and you're like, I can't even remember the names of some of these people. And then they're like down to like three after that. Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this? How are we going to react to this? And who's in charge here? Because the guy that was in charge has a concussion now. I guess it's you, Ripley. So what, what's the play here? We've got a little girl in tow with us as well. Mm-hmm. And an android that I'm not entirely trusting because I know how this went the last time. <laughs> right. I tried to shove a porno mag down my throat. <laughs> right. So... There's a lot of fun stuff at play in, in that particular film. So,
0: so the massacre of the Marines is your favorite part in that. Mm-hmm. Is it really? Do they really wipe
1: out 17? Oh, it's yeah. Because there's like a whole fleet of them, and you literally, when we watch, you'll be like, I can't keep track of all these people. I was like, don't worry about it because they're about to all go here in a second.
0: So when we were when I was watching this today earlier today, T mm-hmm. two uh, Ava came in okay. and she came in right at the part when it's I'll take you, close your boots in your know, motorcycle. <laughs> The wisdom of children, right? She yeah. just says to me, you know, dad, this is a, a a great reason why you should always have a spare change of clothes in your car. <laughs> that was her deduction. But she sat there and she burned the movie with me and she's pretty good in that. Man, I think with what you just said, I might, we're kind of working through some Jurassic Park in our house right now. It's mm-hmm. funny you mentioned that because we just finished the first one last night and we started the second one. Well, but if you do aliens, you have to invite me because I kind of need to be there to witness this. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm
1: okay yeah that's that, that's with her one. yeah cuz all right yeah You're, you also have me on tap for halloween as well so
0: yeah that's a big one that's gonna, are, that's going to be a big night in our house these are <laughs>
1: film moments i have to be a part of yep <laughs> yep excellent matt this is a lot of fun talking about t2 from 1991 part of this i actually thought of a cool thing and i'm revealing it to you now <laughs> on air uh uh we've done this 3 years in a row now mm. I think we need to do one more year, so four more entries, and we'll have a bracket of sixteen box office films. That let's bracket them up. Let's play it out. Let's see what the best, who the champion is of those sixteen films.
0: That's good. Okay,
1: Jaws versus T two, Batman versus Ghostbusters. Uh, uh, what what did we do? Turtles versus Dark Horse Turtles versus Karate Kid. Oh man, we could have Top Guns in there. Yeah, Top Gun, E T. Ooh, Top Gun versus Mm E.T. Temple of Doom. Well, let's reveal another entry. So wrapping up this cast next week, uh, just taking a look back. Matt, he was the director that launched this whole podcast for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, You Need Another Clue, Rye Audience. The film came out in 1999. Uh, It was one of the highest grossing horror suspense films of all time. Uh, Has one of the biggest twists in all of cinematic history. This film made a fortune in the summer of 89. A summer that was filled with Phantom Menace, uh, The Matrix, a huge film, The Mummy, and it stood its ground in the late August months. Six cents, Matt. Mr. M. Night Shyamalan is going to rear his head again to this podcast, but in a film that I think is equal parts brilliant and damning for himself. (laughs)
0: So I'm going to pose this out there and I would like Ryan Nation to respond in email or on any of the social accounts. Yeah. The over or under okay. on how many times Orson Welles comes up next week Ooh. as well. And Hitchcock? <laughs> okay, let's do all. So Wells and Hitchcock together over and under as a comparison to Shemylan next week. I'm going to go right now and I'm going to throw it down at seven. Oh
1: man, I'm going to go like
0: ten happen a lot isn't it yeah it's inevitable storytelling wise and care and uh, uh career wise i think that they both offer plenty of uh interesting points this will be a lot of fun though
1: because i know we really come in heavy on the unbreakable front uh but you and i don't really talk about this particular film a lot so this will be fun to really get into the weeds with and really just kind of see where the brilliance began for him so
0: how you can be a master of your craft and then lose it and then maybe get it back to only lose it again
1: Lose it, get it back, lose it, get it back, lose it, get it
0: back. While we're talking about him, let me ask you a question real quick. Yeah. The beach movie that he's coming out oh, with I this know. summer. Old? Okay. Was it always titled Old? I saw the trailer for that film again last night, and I swear to God the movie of that wasn't called Old. The name of that movie wasn't Old that the was, first time I saw it. Hmm. Maybe it was, but I looked at my wife and said, "That's is that a new? And she said, I don't think that maybe... There's no way that movie was called old. The trailer already feels old. I don't think it looks very good. I don't think it does <laughs> oh, either. Oh, God.
1: Like, what happened? Like, he like had it for like a second and then like... A
0: beach that ages you. Are we back to happening space? I think so. I don't know.
1: We'll see it because we're scientists in the film department and we got to dissect what goes bad in things. Mm-hmm. I'm not hopeful, though. Like, Nothing. glass left me pretty... Down. Pretty down, yeah. yeah. So... Alrighty. So until next time, hit us up on Facebook or Instagram. Productions at gmail.com is the email. Patreon.com slash RiceMileFilms and T Public. A lot of fun stuff always happening over there. So until next time, Matt. Cheers. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I'm going to go boot up my T800. He's got to be- watch out uh, uh, up front here. Uh, if I have any packages getting delivered, he can go get them for me.
0: <laughs> I'm going to put that Terminator to work, man. My rose bushes are out of control. So send him over because. My skin tears and his doesn't, so gets in him and cuts some rose bushes down.
1: Isn't that the plot of the lawnmower, man?
0: Da, da, da. <laughs> we'll see you all next time. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening
1: to Rye Smile Films. For more Rye Smile content, go to patreon.com slash rye smile films for exclusive bonus episodes, plus feature-length watch-along commentaries on your favorite movies, and TV show recap episodes covering the best from the small screen. For Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Terminator 2 Judgment Day is property of TriStar Pictures, Corelco Pictures, Pacific Western Productions, Lightstorm Entertainment, and La Studio Canal, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers.
2: No, don't do it. Don't go. It
3: has to end here. I order
2: you not to. I order you not to go. I order you not to go.
3: I know now why you cry, but it's something I can never do.